Welcome to the Katipunan Dialogue, a podcast by the Strategic Studies Program of the University of the Philippines Center for Integrative and Development Studies. This is where we discuss trends and views concerning Philippine foreign policy and the regional strategic environment. I'm your host, Herman Kraft. This week, we ask our speakers to discuss the evolving security situation in the Indo-Pacific by analyzing the movements and buildup of security forces around the region. I'd like to start by introducing our guests. First off, we have Dr. Rajaswari Rajagapalan, Director of the Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology at the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi, India. Welcome to the podcast, Raji. Thank you so much for having me here. Also joining us today is the former Chief of Staff of the Armed Forces of the Philippines and Cabinet Secretary, General Emmanuel T. Bautista, retired. Welcome to the podcast, Manny. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you both for joining us. The first question is actually for both our speakers. One of the most significant developments at the turn of the century is the rise of China and its growing assertiveness on security and strategic issues. The U.S. has identified China as a strategic competitor you know, and even the Biden administration in its interim national security strategy has actually said so in very stark terms. From your perspective, how does the strategic competition between the U.S. and China affect regional security? Can I ask you to go first, Manny? Sure, thank you very much. Uh, uh, I'd like to set the background first. The, uh, the Indo-Pacific, we're talking about the Indo-Pacific. It has now become the arena of conflict between this great power rivalry. And uh, Prime Minister Morrison of Australia called the Indo-Pacific as the epicenter of this geopolitical competition. If you will note the geography of the Indo-Pacific, uh, you will see in the middle of it is the uh, Southeast Asia, which is bounded by the South China Sea, in, right in the center. And if you notice also, the Philippines is in the center uh, of the center, a very geostrategic location between the South China Sea and the Pacific. Now, what is the situation in the Indo-Pacific? Uh, we have a U.S.-led liberal order and uh, open economic regime. It is backed up by U.S. overwhelming power projection capability. And we are seeing the rise of China as an economic powerhouse and the military power. And China is challenging the current world order to assume a dominant role and shape the world that is more accommodating to its values. However, in doing so, China is engaged in territorial hegemony, coercive behavior, and uh, disregard for the rule of law. Now, what are the consequences of this aggressiveness? We, we have seen the U.S. pivot to Asia uh, from its uh, preoccupation in the Middle East and elsewhere. We have also seen the emergence of the Quad to to uh, somehow balance China's uh, growing uh, assertiveness. We have seen the involvement of uh, European powers. Uh, we've seen uh, UK, uh, uh, France, Germany, and other European Union countries, uh, not to mention uh, Australia, Canada, and others. And uh, we've seen territorial disputes. Uh, there are five uh, 
flashpoints here in this region that has figured prominently in the geopolitical landscape. And these are flashpoints that can trigger a conflict and uh, involve the U.S. and other powers. Note that China is a protagonist in most of these conflicts. And the U.S. is also uh, sometimes indirectly involved, if not directly, uh, through its alliances and uh, relationship with these uh, countries. So uh, that to me is the, uh, the uh, uh, strategic competition between U.S. and China and how they affect uh, regional security. Raji, same question, but um, I guess one thing that I'd like to um, ask you about you now is, is uh, the extension. We used to talk about the Asia-Pacific, right? Now we talk about the Indo-Pacific. You know? the, the extent to which this strategic competition that we've been talking about actually involves or affects um, uh, both the Indian Ocean, India, you know? and how that in turn actually gets into... Um, basically what what used to be just east asia right yeah absolutely i think uh, it's uh, it's true uh, for a long time countries in the indo-pacific uh, including india uh, avoided taking sides between the us and china they did not want to get dragged into this competition between the two major powers uh, much of the region also thought that china's rise is not really a threat and that it will come to be a benign power or an accommodating power but I think all of those assumptions have been broken uh, for more than a decade now with China's increasingly assertive posture, behavior in the South China Sea uh, and elsewhere. Uh, even then, I think many believed, in public spaces at least, wanted to believe that, that uh, China, China's rhetoric as a peaceful, uh, peaceful rise um, uh, should be uh, taken forward. Maybe there is some truth to it. But in private, they began to maintain that there's a certain amount of wariness about China's rights and what it could mean for them in a economic security and strategic terms. And I think those beliefs that were originally held in private conversations have now come out in the open for quite a few years now, uh, for a while absolutely. And countries in the region are having to take a, make a clear choice between the US and China. Uh, it's not easy given that much of the region is dependent on China, uh, on trade and investment or economic, uh, 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 on the economic front. But when it comes to securities, political, sovereignty related issues, and they don't see eye to eye with, the, with China, and they are mostly with the U.S. and U.S. allies, U.S. partners. Um, so the fact that, for instance, the ASEAN did come out with an ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific AIP uh, clearly says a lot about the changing strategic uh, orientation. And I think even India, for instance, that sat on the fence for a long time, uh, began to see the validity or the usefulness of embracing the U.S. and U.S. allies. And I think this has been the case for quite a few years now. At least ever since Xi Jinping has come into power in China, there has been a marked difference in terms of how China behaves with its neighbors uh, and also from uh, uh, those countries uh, far from the mainland in a sense, whether it is Canada, whether it is Sweden, China has not really spared anybody. So in a sense, I think countries are coming together to recognize that the peaceful rise of China rhetoric is just a merely a rhetoric. We've got to see go by the actions on the ground, and the act actions on the ground are dictating a different posture, a different strategic orientation to all the major powers. And I think that's why you are increasingly seeing uh, much of the ASEAN countries um, and uh, other major powers within the Pacific, whether it is Australia, Japan, India, all of them coming to uh, even South Korea. Uh, Vietnam. A lot of the countries are coming together to recognize that we need to do something about it. We need to behave, uh, counteract 
with the Chinese belligerent behavior in diplomatic as well as in possible military terms. So US-China competition has become a reality, but at the same time, we need, we need a coalition of countries to come together to respond to this particular, um, uh, to this new phenomena that we are seeing now playing out in the last decade or so. Let me press you on, on, on the point that you said about the involvement of the United States on this one and, and the extent to which um, uh, countries in the region are actually looking at it or seeing it as, as uh, uh, providing some sort of um, leadership, if you will, you know, uh, in this coalition that you're talking about, right? But, but the, the question, I think, for many countries in the region is how much do you think is the United States committed Right uh, uh, to this particular uh, uh, issue. In, in other words, um, what is the what do you think? And and I guess you can you can pull things out of your own studies as far as India is actually concerned. Now, um, what do you think is the current perception of U.S. power and its commitment, you know, uh, to the security of the Indo-Pacific region, especially in, in the context of what you were talking about regarding the uh, uh, the threat uh, to to uh, regional security posed by the rise of China. Absolutely. No, I think to many countries in the region, the U.S. continues to be some sort of a security current, uh, a stabilizing factor, even if nothing else, it's a stabilizing factor uh, without which China could have been expected to be, behave much worse in terms of penalizing countries for making wrong choices, quote unquote, wrong choices, maybe in the telecommunication sector, if for not choosing Huawei, uh, uh, who seek an independent inquiry into the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic. So all of these countries have been met with, uh, and the Chinese behavior could have been much worse if the US's uh, role in the, in the region was somewhat more negligent in a sense. And there I would say that I think there was a certain amount of initial apprehension uh, when the Biden administration was coming into office and how a Biden administration would continue, whether it will continue with the policies of the Trump administration that was clearly focused on China and its muscular policies. So I think despite that apprehension as to what role the U.S. would play under a new Biden administration and whether the U.S. will continue with the tough policy line on China, um, you know, taking forward the policy from the Trump administration, I think those apprehensions have been somewhat put to rest. Uh, the initial skepticism was because traditionally you have seen a democratic administration in the White House uh, pursuing a much more accommodative approach towards China. And Biden being a vice president during the uh, former uh, Obama administration, there was a sense that he might carry forward that particular approach and so on and so forth. But I think four years later, when uh, Biden came into the White House, it was a very different China that he was dealing with. China had changed significantly in terms of material power, in terms of the political uh, power and so on and so on, and of course the military power. Um, so the China that Biden was in, uh, confronting was a very different uh, beast altogether. And therefore, uh, today, by the Biden administration, appears to be a lot more realistic about what China's power really means and how we need to respond to the China's muscular policy with a lot more determination and focus. Uh, so the region appears to be, by and large, uh, pleased to see a clear and predictable U.S. leadership under Biden. Uh, and I think uh, Philippines may be even a good example, actually, to look at when uh, you have you see the President Duterte's uh, kind of wavering uh, when it comes to the relationship to the U.S. But I think even Philippines has come around to looking at the uh, usefulness and reinforcing the importance of working with the U.S. when it really matters and so on and so forth. Um, that's, that's where I think China's short-sightedness short comes into play. 
the manner in which China, for instance, treats its own the U.S. allies, who are China's friends, for instance, uh, in a very shoddy manner. And that actually pushes them to China a lot closer. Look at the case of South Korea, for instance. Uh, the manner in which China went about imposing economic cost on, uh, on Seoul for deploying the U.S. missile defense uh, systems in uh, South Korea a couple of years ago. Uh, similarly, Philippines have had to deal with China's increasing violation treaties on the South China Sea issue. So I think uh, China has a very, very short-sighted approach when it comes to some of these policy, policy issues. And I think it pushes its limits beyond a point. Uh, it's not able to get the right response and these countries are moving closer to the U.S. or other major Indo-Pacific powers uh, in the region. Thanks. Um, Mani, um, same, same, um, coming in from, from the same uh, uh, point, but, but in this case, I guess uh, it's a question of um, how much does the Philippines appreciate you know, the, the kind of uh, uh, commitment uh, that the United States seem to actually pose as far as this, this issue is concerned. Um, we, the Philippines has always asked for more commitments, right, uh, uh, from, from the United States, clearer commitments. Um, so the question here is, um, what are perceptions in the Philippines, or what do perceptions in the Philippines reflect as far as American commitments? And to what extent can you say that this is seen or not seen no, in terms of the kinds of deployments that the United States is actually making uh, uh, in the region? Mm, that's a very good uh, point, uh, you know, uh, uh, perceptions about commitments. Now, uh, perceptions are changing, uh, as you will observe, uh, the evolution of U.S. policy pronouncements and the actions. And the drivers of U.S. policy are its uh, domestic uh, political and uh, economic considerations, as well as uh, strategic considerations. So this is driving how the U.S. Uh, uh, acts and sets its policy. And uh, we're, we're seeing that evolve through time. Uh, in the past, the U.S. adopted a policy of uh, strategic ambiguity, distancing itself from territorial disputes, and strategically, priorities are elsewhere, and uh, that is in Europe, the Middle East, and even the war on terror. Uh, it did not want to embolden its allies here in the Pacific, including the Philippines, uh, fearing that uh, the resultant aggressiveness of uh, us allies may lead to conflict and inevitably draw the U.S. into it, opening up a, another front for which it is not prepared. Now, this is now changing with its pivot to Asia and the recognition that China is now the number one threat. And this is also influenced by domestic, political, economic situation. Now, Americans want a stronger position against China. And they are blaming China for its uh, economic woes, including unemployment. And uh, other issues are uh, cyber threat, election interference, human rights, and also strategic considerations, as China now wants to challenge the United States. And uh, this is now the, the trend in U.S. policies. But who knows if U.S. policies will change again in the future? as they change administrations also. But having said that, uh, let me put forward my take on this. Uh, first, I am not contented on simply being an observer of U.S. policy or commitment and be resigned to what the perceived U.S. position is and the sour grape when it is not in our favor. 
Uh, instead, uh, I do not just watch things happen. I would rather make things happen. Uh, and I would rather be proactive and influence U.S. actions, not just watch what U.S. will do. Uh, you know, United Kingdom in World War II uh, did this when uh, UK deliberately induced US involvement in the European war amidst the initial hesitancy of the US to be involved. Uh, in fact, through a deliberate special operations. Uh, and uh, Israel does this too. It lobbies in the US to influence uh, the US behavior. And uh, I'd rather go this path. Uh, influence uh, U.S. action rather than just simply watching uh, or observing uh, what the U.S. will do and uh, what the perceptions of U.S. policy is. Thank you. Um, Raji, you mentioned earlier about China's strategic short-sightedness in the way that it's actually behaving uh, in the region. And, and I'd like to push a little bit on, on that particular point. You know, um, because one of the things that we're actually observing is the extent to which China has actually built up its military and deployed its forces uh, around around the region. Um, it now has basically the largest navy if we're just counting ships, right, um, uh, uh, in the world. Now, how do you think is this affecting uh, regional dynamics, right? Uh, um, is, is Many would actually say that, and, and I think um, both what you've said earlier on and what Manny is actually saying right now uh, hints at or points to the idea that um, these activities on the part of China uh, is creating a situation where you have countries in the region rethinking relations with China, rethinking relations with the United States, and even creating coalitions like the Quad, for instance, right? So um, um, what do you think um, are... are are these dynamics, no? uh, and, and what are the drivers of uh, these kinds of dynamics right now? Absolutely, that's a fantastic question. And I think uh, India is a good case study, so to say, because I think India was a typical uh, one of those countries who never wanted to take a side, sat on the fence on most foreign policy issues, uh, most important security-related developments. For much of the uh, several decades, in a sense, India preferred to not really take sides during the Cold War or even the, later on and so on and so forth. So it, its preferred policy was the hedging, just sit on the fence, not really take a, take a bet one way or the other. But I think China's uh, actions over the last few years has pushed India certainly um, uh, closer to the U.S. Uh, US allies, uh, build up partnerships with the Quad is a good example. Uh, again, uh, India possibly is the weakest link, but even India is now beginning to embrace the uh, Quad uh, minilateral uh, framework in a much more emphatic manner. For instance, uh, in last December, we had the Malabar exercise. Typically, it initially um, started off as a bilateral India-US naval exercise. From 2015 onwards, Japan became a permanent member of the uh, tri as a trilateral uh, naval exercise between the three countries. And in <clears throat> December 2020, we had Australia also participating in that military exercise, the Quad. Uh, so literally, it's a Quad military exercise that happened. You can call it by name Malabar naval exercise or any other name, but in in essence, it is the bringing together of the uh, and in the summer this uh, last year, you had uh, 
yeah, a few months ago, actually, uh, you had the Quad countries plus France exercising together in the Indo-Pacific waters. Uh, in 2019, you had India take the initiative of undertaking a, um, a Quad a counterterrorism tabletop exercise. So, so India, which was possibly the weakest link in the uh, in the in the Quad, is also becoming much more proactive. And thanks to China, it's all courtesy China because otherwise India was not comfortable. India was always thought of uh, any kind of uh, quad or any other minilateral kind of that is taking shape in the Indo-Pacific Indo region as a sort of a counter, uh, a counter uh, sort of an effort to uh, um, contain China or some sort of, it is perceived as that and India did not want to be part of that. But I think certainly the Galvan clash, the, uh, the clash that took place on the Sino-Indian border in Ladakh last year, uh, which involved casualties after several decades, in a sense, the Galvan conflict I broke several records. Uh, first of all, bringing casualties on both sides. Uh, China has not really confirmed the number of casualties on their side, but we had about Indian on the Indian side. There were 20 casualties. Uh, there was firing on the border again after, after several decades. So, the Galvan conflict, the 2020 is a real a big marker in terms of India's uh, approach to China is concerned. And that has made India also recognize the need to embrace the US and other Indo-Pacific major powers, whether it is India-Japan relationship, India-Australia relationship, India's outreach to the Asia-Pacific, ASEAN countries, all of them have gained further significance. And I think this is also going to result in what one is, of course, the Quad is kind of is a somewhat more matured organization now as compared to a few years ago. But you also have a, a Quad Plus that is come about in the context of the COVID. Uh, in terms of mm -hmm. looking at uh, vaccine diplomacy, in terms of uh, post-COVID uh, uh, economic recovery and so on and so forth. But the fact is that I do believe it has the potential to emerge as uh, something, as a grouping that would have a strategic relevance uh, in the post-COVID scenario. Uh, look at the first squad, how it came about in the backdrop of the 2005 tsunami. From there came the first squad in November 2007, in 2007. And now, a decade later, the fact that the Quad has come back for a second time, it has taken on a second avatar, clearly says that the problems and the challenges that were confronting these countries in the region have not gone, not gone away. Not only not gone away, those problems have intensified and has made the uh, importance of these kind of unilaterals a, a lot more uh, significant. Second, I think so, while on the one hand, you will see the emergence of a number of strategic, these kind of groupings, minilaterals in the perspective, but you're also going to be seeing a lot more thematic groupings come about. One such example is the India, Australia, Japan uh, trilateral uh, supply chain resilience initiative. So you're also going to, because in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, you also saw your reliance, uh, ex extra reliance on China and how that is a vulnerability in the overall global global supply chain um, uh, scenario. And therefore, many countries are taking the efforts to move things out of uh, China on the one hand, also develop your own initiative so that you are not relying on China. That vulnerability is somewhat remote. It's not going to be easy to move out of China completely, but at the same time, at least start making the effort. So I think the India, Japan, Australia initiative is a case in point, And I think that's a good example. But I think there are more such networks that are likely to come about. Technology networks, quad technology networks, 
network that is another network that is kind of taking shape in the, in the over the last few months so there are going to be several more these thematic groupings as well as so a very a thematic or a very purpose oriented grouping but also there are going to be broader strategic minilaterals that will take uh, uh, take shape in the region precisely because of uh, china's belligerent behavior over the last year and a half in particular okay one last question for both of you and, and I'll, I'll toss this to manny first right um, and, and this has to do, uh, still you know, pushing on the issue of, of, of the Quad, for instance, and, and multilateralism in, in, the, in the security architecture in the region, right? Um, China's aggressive uh, 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 assertions of its ter uh, territorial claims, you know, the kinds of uh, militarization that's actually taking place on um, uh, land features in the uh, South China Sea, for instance, you know, um, all of this has, has, has uh, uh, contributed to uh, a logic that uh, somehow um, the strategic competition between the U.S. and and and, and China has superseded, so to speak, right uh, existing security architectures, um, um, ASEAN uh, 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 and so on. Um, the question, of course, is the 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 question uh, the, the the question here is when you look at um, developments like the Quad, do you see this as something that weakens? or undermines uh, existing multilateral arrangements uh, and the effects that they actually have in the security in the region? Um, Mani, please. Uh, I guess the emergence of the Quad, uh, it, it's, it's inevitable. And uh, other minilaterals, I do not discount other minilaterals to be organized in the future, as uh, Raji said. But, but these are all in reaction to what China is doing. It's, uh, it's, a response to China's growing uh, economic influence and the military power. And uh, well, while we welcome China's economic growth uh, because uh, we, we anticipate the benefits we can gain from them also, but we are worried of uh, China's growing uh, military capability. And, uh, and this is because this is happening in the context of uh, China's aggressiveness, it's uh, territorial hegemony and disregard, disregard for the rules-based international order, uh, including the uh, disregarding the arbitral award of 2016. So uh, uh, we see countries in the region reacting to this, uh, not just upgrading military capabilities and some at unprecedented levels, and uh, we are seeing that now. Uh, we see countries coming together uh, as you mentioned, the Quad, and uh, uh, it is not far-fetched that other minilaterals may emerge. And uh, we even see countries from outside the region getting involved, and uh, who knows, uh, also joining these uh, uh, minilaterals uh, or alliances, and because they all have a stake in what happens here as well. And uh, uh, Regarding its militarization, for instance, of the island features, uh, it affords China now a platform from which to influence the South China Sea and littoral waters uh, and uh, uh, somehow affect the free flow of uh, uh, trade and commerce in the area. And uh, uh, by deploying its military capabilities, uh, China is taking its claim in the South China Sea in no uncertain terms. And uh, uh, demonstrating that it is willing to use force in for such claim. So I guess uh, minilaterals like Quad 
uh, is inevitable uh, given the motivation why these are coming out uh, and, and the why they are now uh, getting more uh, towards military uh, activities because of the uh, military significance of what uh, China is doing. Uh, and if it is to balance China, then the military dimension of it will take prominence as China deliberately flexes its uh, military muscle also. Note that uh, among the Quad members, uh, two have territorial conflicts with China, uh, India and uh, also Japan. Australia is also having problems with China and of course the United States. So, so it is inevitable given the the posturing of China, that countries will come together and have a military agenda also, if only to balance uh, China's growing assertiveness. And as I said, not just minilaterals, not just uh, upgrading their capabilities, uh, not just others uh, from outside the region getting involved and coming together, uh, but uh, more importantly, the residents in the region themselves must be more involved, uh, the resident powers uh, in the region, the, the middle powers and the Raji mentioned them, including uh, South Korea, which is not a member of the Quad yet, whether it does that in the future, we will see. And, uh, but what is important, uh, more than the, the minilaterals emerging, uh, we need to see U.S. continued and unequivocal commitment in the region. And as I said, the resident powers, the middle powers here in uh, the region must rise up to take up more responsibility. And uh, we need, yes, we need other powers outside the region. Uh, we see Europe and NATO. We need them to be involved, uh, if only to deliver the message that what China is doing is not really, it's not acceptable. And uh, the international community is pushing back. But note that the other missing part, the most important missing part, is ASEAN. And uh, with the involvement of relevant powers uh, to balance China, perhaps uh, ASEAN will find motivation to play a bigger role uh, than it is doing right now. In the context of ASEAN centrality, note that ASEAN is in the center of all of this. And, uh, but uh, more importantly, and finally, the Philippines also must stand up, uh, us as a country. After all, it is the Philippines that took China to the arbitral court and won, mm. and must therefore be the most interested in pursuing a rules-based international order. So we need the involvement of everybody if we are to maintain uh, the balance here, if we are to maintain uh, peace and regional security in the Indo-Pacific. Raji, your last thoughts? Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I uh, entirely agree with uh, the general in whatever, in most of the points that he raised. Um, so <clears throat> I think China's massive military power accompanied by its <clears throat> aggressive actions against all of its neighbors has given way to massive insecurity across the Indo-Pacific. 
um, even in the middle of the pandemic, China did not spare anyone. The naval intrusions into Indonesia's exclusive economic zones in Natuna Islands or Malaysia, Philippines, Vietnam, Taiwan, Japan, India, and uh, no one has been really spared of its aggressive behavior. And this is, in fact, leading to two sets of actions. One is, of course, on the one hand, there are efforts to counter through military terms. I'll give you the example of India, for instance. Post-Galvan conflict, there is India is now diverting a significant number, significant uh, <clears throat> size of the Indian military forces, greater military uh, forces to its northern border against China, diverting them from the India-Pakistan line of control border. So from one border to the other, India is now switching to larger, making a larger presence in the in the northern border ac across China. So that's number one. And forces um, following the Galvan, the forces have not completely disengaged. The continued deployment of forces on the border for prolonged periods has its own dangers. So that's number one. So that's one set of actions that happen. Second, I think, is the growing political and military competition as a result of this in a sense China's aggressive behavior that is given between securities but it's also giving way to more competition both in political and military terms which is another fallout and I think uh, building up of new partnerships and minerals we talked about there are also efforts at creating new military partnerships coming together for joint uh, military exercises joint patrolling especially in the South China Sea we have seen uh, a, a, a number of such exercises over the last year patrolling over the last year uh, the large number of military forces deployed in the region in order to defend and de deter um, China, that is also, there are also coordinated efforts. But these could potentially form into some sort of a military alliance in the future. Again, these are, again, fallout. And I don't think it is all very positive uh, um, kind of a, um, impact or implications of this. Greater military spending, again, the general touched upon that. Greater military spending and the military modernization, especially of the naval forces, and some of them could be life cycle driven modernization that is happening of the naval forces. But there are serious underway to build up the military muscle to address China's aggressive posturing. But I think all of this is, in a sense, leading to greater suspicion in the region, greater competitiveness, greater suspicion in the region, making it difficult to cooperate even on issues that might be mutually beneficial because you don't take each other for uh, whatever the rhetoric, uh, be it on the environment challenges or disaster management issues. Cooperating with China has become that much more challenging because China's military might and of course its wolf warrior diplomacy has been unleashed, especially over the last year and a half. So in a sense, things have got a lot more complicated. It's constantly shifting geopolitical dynamics in the region. Uh, and I think it's going to be very difficult to kind of uh, sort of predict with any certainty how it's going to impact on the region. But China's, uh, China's behavior has been most consequential and there are repercussions that the entire region is going to feel. Um, so let me stop with that and uh, thank you again. Okay, thank you very much. We'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Rajaswari Rajakapalan and General Emmanuel D. Bautista for joining us today. Many thanks as well to our co-sponsor, Conrad Adenauer Stiftung Philippines. Thank you everyone for listening to today's Katipunan Dialogue. This has been the Katipunan Dialogue Podcast. Hosted by Herman Joseph Kraft. Program written by the UPCIDS Strategic Studies Program. Powered by Mothership Recording Studios. No part of this podcast shall be reproduced without the written consent from the UPCID Strategic Studies Program. All rights reserved 2021.